Cool. So here we are with the Phantom of the Mats, Sam K. How are we doing, my friend? I'm very good, mate. How are you? Yeah, good. Where did Phantom of the Mats come from? Is it something like mm. a self-alias thing? Are you like some sort of superhero? Or something? And I think the superhero thing came in, well, much before I was a kid there. I love that. Uh, it actually came from, um, it was the first musical me and my wife ever went to see, so it's much less rock and roll than it initially uh, comes across. Well, you say it's not rock and roll, so if Andrew Lloyd Webber would sort of disagree with that a little bit, but here we are. These does not cats. That'd be a very different um, alias, I think. It'd be a, it'd be a different <laughs> alias, wouldn't it, to, to try and go by? But no, it, it just came from that, and I'd had the... I'd used my sort of Jim's Instagram for everything. And uh, yeah, I just thought, oh, I'll come up with something else and I'll put a bit of everything on there. And uh, yeah, it just sort of came from that. It was just, I thought it was quite cool, to be honest. But, you know, I'm about as nerdy as they get, so I can't really say anything. Now, you say nerdy, talk to me. What's your sort of, what do you nerd out on? What's like your thing? Uh, well, my right arm's just like covered in a Pokemon sleeve. That's my initial go-to. Um, I grew up on Pokemon, so that was my uh, initial nerding out. Um, and then I got into sort of DC Comics. Yeah, I got into DC Comics and all the sort of Superman, Batman, Justice League, and sort of followed that through. My two-year-old picked up that now, so he's obsessed with Superman, which is great for me. It just means I get to relive all my childhood. Um, DC yeah, versus that, the Marvel that's though initial... that's an interesting um, highlight is that a preference or is that you know only... what? I never got on with the Marvel stuff the Marvel did the films quite well sort of, for the past 10 years but I'm sort of going back to the comic books and the graphic novels and I just I always preferred DC stuff yeah, I've always loved like, Batman and that kind of thing as well a bit more like darker a bit more like I don't know, I think that's why, like, Joe, yeah. that kind of thing really resonates a bit more, a bit more, like, okay, a bit more nitty-gritty, not quite, you know, Americanized superheroes, and, you know, I mean, saying that you get Superman. And, yeah, you know, the like... joke is, <laughs> I, I was, actually, I couldn't stand any of the Christian Bale Batman films, because he, he was a good Bruce Wayne, but his Batman was crap. That was the only thing he did well. It was literally the only thing he did well. He went, I'm Batman, and that was it. <laughs> the rest of the films were crap. <laughs> Uh, the thing with Christian Bale, you got to appreciate, is the weight cutting from the machinist to um, falling out for Batman and the rest of that kind of transition is horrible. And like, oh god, it's horrible. Yeah, but you know, testosterone helps. <laughs> Just a little bit. So, I've, I've, I've but, no doubt in my mind that they've used it. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. A little bit uh, of you know, Ra's al Ghul kind of, you know, treatment. Anyway, <laughs> moving on swiftly yeah, from Christian Bale steroid abuse before we even. Got five minutes into this. Uh, <laughs> I can so, rant about that. I, I, I like that rant. It's a good little tangent. So let's go to jujitsu. Mm. How where did jujitsu come from? Did you want to be your own kind of superhero as such, or was it just a? How did you fall into it? No, um, I grew up. Uh, I grew up swimming, so I was. Um, I was on the disability sort of uh, British swimming team for all of my youth from nine up until 18. And at 16, I had shoulder surgery. Um, and then I had it again at 18. And he went, look, this is just repetitive strain injury. If you keep going, it's going to get worse. I went, well, I don't really fancy that. So I just stopped. 
Um, and I had, through my sort of teenage years, obviously watched UFC and things like that. And none of the striking really interested me. It was all the groundwork. Me and my, me and my dad just used to muck about on the floor in the living room, um, just pretending we knew what we were doing and slightly drop elbows onto me. It was, yeah, it was good fun, you know, parental bonding. Um, but I actually got very lucky when I stopped swimming. Um, at the time, my dad had a soft play centre for children, so the whole area was matted. And he happened to bump into somebody that was a blue belt back then. I think he's still a blue belt now, actually. He's top. <laughs> but um, he just basically said, look, you know, if you want somewhere to train in, in Kendall, my son's desperate to learn, just use the mat space. And that's what we did. That's what started us off. And sort of uh, we trained there for well, be four years, five, four years before I actually opened the gym. So, regards of, for my own, I don't know, ignorance anyone listening, if you wouldn't mind, what is your disability like technically? What is your condition you've got? It does have a proper name, but I can never remember it. Um, just my right arm's deformed, so I don't have an elbow joint. My hand is like a crab pincer, just with no grip. It's the easiest way of describing it. Um, I didn't say it like that because I start smirking. I feel bad for smirking because you made me laugh because you said crab pincer. Yeah, I have to. No, I have to be laughed at. Jesus, you know, some of the things my wife says, honestly. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's useless for most things. Um, the only sort of the only the only plus of it is it's really difficult to submit me on that side. Yeah, I might just be questionable on that side. I might have mentioned that side must be like immaculate. Yeah, I've I've had people take it and try it. I just go, yeah, go on there. It's a weird shape as well, so they get some hip lift into it, thinking, ah, I've got this here, and it's only when I start laughing that they go, oh, oh, maybe not then. One day somebody will grab out of it and they'll just snap it clean off, though. So laughing, guarantee it. So now you're obviously a lot more mature with the whole getting your head around having a disability and being able to sort of you know, laugh at it and make these jokes I'm not laughing at for anyone listening I'm you know solemnly <laughs> disapproving but nah, when, you were, when, you, <laughs> when you were a lot younger when you were sort of growing up with it how did you find I don't know accepting it working around it because obviously it's something you've always had so how have you found yeah, working around it, it so? it's one of the it's one of the weird things you know because I mean I, my, my my defect's congenital so I was just sort of born this way and people get it all the time oh how do you manage to adapt to this and that well you just do well it must be hard doing it like that I thought well I've never done it with two arms must be a fucking piece of piss for you honestly mate like no I've I've just I don't know the only times I've ever had to learn anything and then adapt actually physically adapt stuff was through learning jujitsu everything's taught in a way that works for two arms and two legs. And I had to go, oh, well, that don't work, so I need to change that. So it was only really then that I started adapting stuff. And I tell her, like, I adapted a lot of weight training prior to that, but I just used leather straps that looked like I was, I don't know, I dropped them from someone's dungeon, just strapped dumbbells to my arms and stuff. But yeah, that was a different. Uh, that's a story for a different day. <laughs> that's good thing it's past. Uh, wait till nine o'clock, then we'll do your own past watershed talk. Anyway, <laughs> mm. I've sworn about twenty times already. So this is it. 
Uh, <laughs> it's good to say we're not live. Anyway. Um, <laughs> again, it is an interesting concept, the fact of not having to adapt as such because you didn't have the reference point in the first place. But, like, with swimming and everything else, did you ever have, mm. I don't know, limitations as such you were already given, or did you kind of think, okay, I'll give it a go and see what happens? Um, I, when I was younger, I, I had an absolutely belting swimming coach, and she was very clever and very technique-driven, um, and it, it's, it's helped me to go throughout the rest of my life thinking like that, but when I was younger, she just adapted everything for me. So I didn't really think of it much until my late teens. And I went, well, why am I pulling? You know, why am I doing certain things different to everyone else? And it was then I just clicked that you know, I was just doing what I was told up until that point. She'd done all the adapting. That was it. So when it came to adapting things for you in jiu-jitsu... How did you get that kind of influence? Was there anyone particularly you went to, or was it just something you had to work out as you went along? Like, how did you? Um, you know. We, we all, everybody will adapt technique to some extent, usually through injuries or preferences more than anything. You'd be surprised how many people adapt to normal technique just because it feels better that way, and you can just sort of let them do it. So. Um, a lot of my coaches earlier on would just watch me do things and go, um, try it like this. You know, try instead of coming up to that side, either swap sides, or it would just be a case of, you're not going to do that, don't worry about it. It was only when I started teaching that I had to really start looking and go, I need to understand how to make that work for me in order to be able to make it work for everybody else. So... Again, we've sort of jumped around timelines quite a lot. So how long have you been training prior to getting your black belt? Oh, um, I got my black belt May last year. Um, I've been training eight and a half years. Roughly. So again, like I said, we've sort of glossed over the timelines. Oh yeah, so I started, oh now I'm a black belt. I mean, that's fine. I think in that kind of, in, that, <laughs> that little bit in between, I think that's kind of an interesting bit. <laughs> yeah. It's it's gone quick. It's weird. So, did you compete much like throughout the belts, or was it more of just staying in the gym and trying to? I don't know. No, no. I uh, my first competition did. Um, I was actually I was working, so I was down in. I was down near Dartford. I, I didn't know anybody or anything. I think I'd been training two months, and I went. I've got a weekend free. There's no point in me driving six hours home to stay there for. A day and then go back. Um, so I just I went to I found a competition in Dartford and went to see that and got absolutely mullered. Just got battered all over the spot. It was brilliant. It was uh, a proper learning experience, but there was no pressure on me, so I wasn't I didn't care. I didn't have anybody there to sort of watch over me or anything. So it, it was fun. I think I got I think I lost one fight on points and then got triangles. Cracking. I loved it. Um, it sounds amazing. <laughs> but uh, after that, it was blue belt. I started competing. Um, I did mainly just little local competitions more than anything, um, and just that, that was it. It was just the learning experiences. I had guys that trained with me that wanted to compete as well. Um, 
but I've pretty much competed. Yeah, I've competed at every belt now, all the way up through, and I was never outclassed. I always felt comfortable doing it. I did uh, Euros at Purple Belt. I think the majority of what I did was um, yeah, just little local competitions to start off with, and then a couple of MMA fights here and there. But they were always uh, jumping last minute, why not? Again, there's so much that's sort of just getting dropped in, we need to kind of scratch a little bit. So, with the competitions, are yeah, you being, um, like yeah. sort of standard rules fully abled, or you've got specific rules you're doing, or you get specific competitions you're doing, or is it just, I don't know? How's that all no, just um, there's been. I know the um, United Arab Emirates competitions. They've worked sort of um, para jiu-jitsu divisions, as they like to call it, um, where I don't, I don't actually, I don't know if they change any of the rule sets specifically. They just try and pit you against somebody with a similar disability. It's because there's not that many disabled uh, athletes competing at the minute, there's there's a difficulty matching you up on a regular basis. Um, I, I think I'm the only disabled black belt in Europe, so that gives you a sort of an idea of what there is around there. I think all in all, I've done. So you're the number one comp- disabled black belt in Europe. Yeah, there's, yeah, that, that's the number I'll one that. top spot. You know, there's <laughs> no, no one got it before me, and I'll uh, I'll run with it. There's a couple of good uh, good brown belts in the UK though that won't be won't be far off black belt now. Yeah, but you're the top spot for the time being, so we'll have that. We'll run for that. With um, yeah, I'll keep that. With the MMA fights, then, what was those situations? Were you cornering? Were you just there to watch? What happened? Um, I was cornering a couple of grapplers. Uh, a couple of fighters that had done a bit of grappling. Um, I think the first one I did was in like uh, it, was, it was like proper old school in like a boxing ring, and we sort of I, that one had been planned, but I'd only planned it. I'd, I'd just been grappling for sort of twelve months and thought, ah, you know what, sod it, I may as well give it a go. I, I'm going to at some point anyway, and uh, I think. It, I think it was about four or five weeks I got matched up with somebody and uh, went down and had a bit of a striking exchange and I think we hit the floor, went underneath the ropes, got re-centred in the middle and there was a bit of a scramble and I next thing I know I was waking up so I'd just been strangled unconscious. It was good fun. I mean... The way you're saying how much fun this all these things are, I mean, I mean, I, tra- I train and I fight and I've you know been choked unconscious and the rest of it. I don't think I've had as much fun as you did with it all. <laughs> I think it's a bit different, but either you know way, as long as you're enjoying it. I think my, I'll openly admit I'm really really weird. I I, I, I just enjoy competition. <laughs> just full stop. Yeah, right, it's really really weird. Yeah, yeah. And That's also, it. Yeah, I just yeah, I really enjoy competition. Um. Like I say, when I was swimming, I was competing. It'd be like every two, three weeks, you'd go to different competitions. Um, and then when I stopped doing that, I just went really sort of down in the dumps that I wasn't going to find anything else like that. 
Um, and so as soon as I started jiu-jitsu, the, the whole aim of it for me was to be able to compete again. And uh, whether it was jiu-jitsu or, you know, little MMA fights here and there, it was, um, it was good. It was good fun. When it comes to competing itself, are you, I don't know, are you trying to achieve a certain status, a certain title? Is it just being in the adrenaline of it all? Is it being performer? Is it exceeding expectations? What does it for you as such, do you think? Ah, now you see you're getting into the nitty-gritty of it. Um, for me, it's always just the personal challenge of it. If I go in, whether I win or lose, if I've done well and I'm happy with my own performance, then I feel like I've gone, done what I needed to do. Um, but I could go in and I think one of I think late late in my blue belt competitions, I went to a competition, I won three fights very quickly and I was pissed off with all three of them because I didn't get to practice what I wanted to go there and try and do. But they were all, I think one of them was like a 10 second flying armbar or something. But I, I just, I wasn't happy with it because it wasn't what I wanted it to be. Um, I, I love the learning experience of it. Um, and I think that's why I run a lot of camps now because I, I think being able to train with people outside of your own gym, it, whether it's in competition or actual training, there's a huge benefit to it and you will learn so much. And it's that that I sort of seek. I, I like all the submission-only shows now that are around and luckily I'm in a position where I can you know, I can do a few of them here and there. Um, but it, it's a new experience for me. It's something I've, I'm not an expert in and that's what I enjoy doing. So Personal challenge, I think. Regards of your learning, how do you like to learn? Are you quite systematic? Like, you know, how you have a lot of competitors who have their, their game based around a certain position. Are you that kind of person where you understand the position and build from there? Are you quite methodical with notes? Are you just sort of feel it out and go from there? Are you, how do you deal with sort of learning itself? Initially, um, when I started trying to, I constantly got told that I need to have a game plan going into stuff. And and I thought, right, I'll start working on that. And it just didn't ever sit for me because I'd go in with a game plan of I'm going to drop into like a little half guard trip, come on top and then fight top half guard, pass, mount, arm lock. That would, and that was what I wanted to do. Um, but it didn't sit well with my own learning because I got very good at just a straight mounted arm lock. I know that position inside out now. I've, I went to um, I went to Tenerife to go and spend a week with Ben Poppleton and Steve Gawthorpe studying it. Came away with just my head exploding. There was that much information. Um, and then I just studied it for six months straight and that was my only goal was to get better at this position and uh and it worked really well but i found that i was lacking in a lot of other sort of positions and that was then affecting my teaching so i now what i do now is i will sit down and 
I've got my own plan for what I want to study and practice, and then I've got um, a plan for what I teach in my school. And there's not necessarily a huge difference, but the difference is I will circulate between what I study so that I end up with an all-round game. Does that make sense? Definitely. So like you're trying to cover the basis of these things without going into too much detail on one specific thing, like not make it too one-dimensional or such. So on that subject of that then, regarding your teaching, how do you like mm. to deliver the information? Is it a case of like a hoist grace, you kind of silent and see what I do with monkey see, monkey do? Or is it like John Danaher, like get your bum bag and your rash guard and sit down and analyse every single part of it? Or are you somewhere in the middle of breaking down things and how much information you give out? I will sit and... It, it definitely isn't monkey see, monkey do, because the way I do things doesn't necessarily... You, know, you won't be able to watch the way I do something and implement it perfectly for you because my body position is going to be very different to make up for what I'm lacking in being my arm. Um, so everything I work towards is very, I have to be able to explain what I'm doing very well. And if I don't, I'll pull everybody back in and work it. But I work everything around very simple concepts. So before all this Corona crap kicked off, I was just going into what was going to be a two-month um, study plan just on guard passing. And the whole concept I work around when I'm teaching anything is working around three phases, so a grip fight, an off-balance, and then a technique. And it applies to everything. So if I'm using that, that, that specific... Um, analogy in passing the off balance doesn't necessarily apply as obviously but the grip fight has to be paramount beforehand you've got to be much better in that grip fight so in it, instead of having my initial off balance or execution of basically screwing you up before I do my technique I, I utilize a, a hip line I call it the hula hoop line if you were stood up and you had a hula hoop going around you, mm. there's that big sort of circumference. And the idea of the way I'll, I'll teach my passes is everything up until the point of my hip crossing that hula hoop line isn't part of a pass. It's just a grip fight beforehand. Does that make sense? Yeah, so like before you even consider passing the hip line, the hula hoop line, you're trying to establish a grip and establish yeah. a position before you even go past or go near that. Yeah, and if my hip can't, or if, I, if I'm not in control of the fight specifically with this pass, I'm not going to try and bring my hip past the hula hoop line. I'm going to keep it where I am, establish my dominant control on top, and then work to pass when my hip can cleanly pass that line. How do you and, deal with teaching techniques for like fully able students versus students with sort of arm conditions like you, because obviously a lot of it is done with based off things you feel, based off ways you react to certain things. But if you haven't had that personal experience as such, how do you then translate that? It's the, do you do things, when you drill something, will you do it both sides or will you just pick a favourite side? 
Oh, sorry, I thought it was rhetorical. Yeah, um, no, no. I'll do both because coach is watching, but I'll have a favourite side. Yeah, so I'm... Unless you are 100% ambidextrous, it is redundant to drill the same technique on both sides over and over and over. Because you'll do it on one side and that will be your favourite side. So if we look at... If I'm on my back in a guard, if I'm tilting my hip to my right and putting my right side down the technique I'm initially going to execute is going to be a scissor sweep to that side. Ask me to scissor sweep to my left-hand side and I'll laugh at you because it just doesn't work. And it's very obvious for me that it's not going to work because my grip and collar with my right hand on top is just pathetic. But the same applies, whether it's because you don't have the arm or whether it's because you favour one side, you may as well just drill that on one side and have something else entirely to do on the other side. Something that feels favourable on that side. It reminds me of this really weird Hoist Gracie thing. Remember I went to one of his seminars and he was saying about, someone asked him, like, would you drill both sides? And he gave this really stupid analogy. It was, um, if you're walking home and putting your key in the door, you only use your left hand if you're holding your baby in the right, which is a long way of saying you only use the weak side if you need to, but I don't know why. <laughs> it's this kind of obscure like reference. I mean, fuck it up. These concepts get so far-fetched and so nonsense. But yeah, that concept of yeah, I think, uh, your dominant sides and that kind of stuff. I think people try to sound too much like Bruce Lee and fail. Um, that sounds like one of them times. A little bit. Just a little bit. Sorry, Hoist, but yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Um, no, I think you, if you've got a favoured side, then you will have favoured techniques on that side. So, like I said, if I'm if my right hip's down and I'm on my in my guard on my right hand side, I've got my techniques I like to go for. If my left hip's down, my whole game plan changes. It's a very different technique. Now, for a long time. If we were if we were going to spar, I'd tell you beforehand, pass me to my left, it'll be the easiest thing you'll do. Because it was. If you put my left-hand side down and pass me that way, I was dog shit. For so long, you'd just get past my guard like that, and I'd be like, right, that'd be great. But because I've done that, I've now developed a completely different game on my left-hand side. And again, it's so tricky to try and make it work amongst everything else, because obviously you have your dominant sides. But then also trying yeah. to fill the gaps in the sense of, yes, you're strong on this side. Yes, you can submit everyone left, right, and centre. Happy days. But what happens if someone goes the other mm. side? What happens if someone acts, tries, tries to actually pass to a weak side? Then what? Yeah. And how do you deal with these kind and, of? I mean, I don't know, problem solving and such. The tr the trick tends to be to, and the easiest way of saying it is, don't let them go to your left. If they start turning onto that side, just shrimp, turn your ass out, move to, move the other way so that you're constantly on your right-hand side. And again, that's fine until you get somebody that's dominantly gripping, forcing you onto that side. So you're no longer controlling the position you're in and the person that you're fighting is executing in a better way than you. And they've put you on your bad side. So, well, now what? You don't want that to be the be-all and end-all. You... Personally, to try and not delve into it too much, I have to have a way that if you manage to get to my left side, which is my weak side, 
go that way, that's fine. But I've got three or four things that I can do that are aggressive and attacking and instantly putting you back on the defensive so that you don't want to go to that side anymore. Now you're back just sticking to my right side if my attacks haven't worked. Okay, if so they've worked, we're in a completely different position. Okay, so you've got the sort of deterrence, you've got these kind of, okay. It's an interesting sort of concept. Instead of having to almost make up for not drilling on that side, you've then got these deterrents then get you back into the more comfortable position, the more dominant position. And on top of that, regards of keeping your sparring, keeping your training in line with that and trying to keep on top of these sort of things, how... Well, for the first question is, how do you like to structure your sessions in the sense of, do you do any specific training, like, I don't know, specific rounds? Do you do any competition-based things, or is it mainly the sort of freestyle rounds? And in your own training, do you find, like, a tick list of things to do as such, regards of things to work on, or is it just, as you go on, you find things and pick up as you go along? There's an element of both. I, I mean, I've got, you can probably see the calendar behind my head, it's like that get close enough to it but I've got on that calendar certain things I want to work on for each month for me personally and it won't necessarily correspond with what I'm teaching because when I'm teaching certain things it's my aim is to educate all my students and make them very well rounded now I've been training a long time and I'm not saying I'm the most well rounded person but I've got big areas of weakness that they don't necessarily need to worry about yet being things like heel hooks and stuff like that so I've been working more on that but that's not something that my white and blue and purple belt gi players want to focus on all the time so I've got very different structures when it comes down to sparring um, we will do probably more specific sparring actually I mean it's not far off but we'll do specific rounds starting in bad positions or I like to call uh, I like to call one of the things we do like a rolling start so you will start we'll have one person start out me or one of the training partners that will just sit on the side and you'll start off almost floor rolling so there's no resistance you just go position for position and you're just sort of moving through nice and light with your techniques and as soon as that person on the side shouts go it is then 100% get to your best position and get a finish as quick as you can not necessarily finish but yeah. you know work and it's then when your effort level goes up and what I tend to find that does is it allows you to specifically spar from a position that you are naturally putting yourself in does that make sense well, definitely. I think as well that really highlights the urgency of competition because when it comes to people who train in the gym versus game day, you'll see the people who haven't mm. got that switch that sort of, you know, oh shit, I'm in bottom mountain to get those points back versus, okay, take my time, breathe, get the shrimping, take your time. I think, okay, the clock's already gone, you've really lost the match. That kind of urgency, that kind of, mm. I don't know, amongst the, the reaction because, again, when you're in a match, it's not always, okay, so I get the grip, I do this, do that. No, it's a little back and forth. It's a bit messy. And it's a kind of salvage positions and see what you can get and then damage control and bitch, bitch bash bosh and then reacting. Mm. So definitely that's a really interesting concept. Regards to your coaching then, 
how much is independently structured versus do you go to other coaches? Do you speak to anyone else when it comes to planning these things? How do you go about getting your curriculums together? So initially I was uh, part of a greater bath club. So they send an element of a curriculum out and you stick to it. But a lot of, in all honesty, a lot of what's set out there is you you teach certain positions, but you can modify it to your own skills and assets, if you would. Um, so you do one week of back escapes, but the back escapes would be my choice of back escapes. It wouldn't be a set sort of back escape that I had to teach. Um, they did set certain things in the fundamentals classes. Um, about, I was a, I was a bit lax with it to be fair because I think a lot of the things that were being taught were a lower percentage back escape than what I'd established worked better for me. Um, and then passed on and found that it works better for the other people I'm training with. Um, I'm now under the Gordo Jiu-Jitsu banner. And so we've got Ben Poppleton that sort of heads up the European side of it. Um, and there's an element of I can go to him and get as much advice as I need. I can, I can go and say, right, I want to structure my classes for the whole year. What do you think? You know, what would you be doing? What works best? And he would he'd sit down with me and plan it all. Um, but there's also an element of, you know, I'm running a gym. I've been doing it for, I mean, I've been teaching since I was a blue belt. So I've been teaching for eight years. Um, and I, you know, I know where things have happened and what works and what doesn't. And it proves now that my students that started 12 months ago come on a hell of a lot quicker than my students that started five years ago. Um, so, I, I mean, I structure it. No, no, go for it. No, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt a delay on that. I thought you finished. Um, regards of like longevity in the sport, what do you think has kept you in it as long as it has with that same kind of motivation and enthusiasm? Has it been the act of competing? Because, again, you were saying how much you felt you were missing that regards of after swimming and that kind of thing. Because to train consistently and actively and coach and everything else, it's no easy task. And, you know, as, as you as many other coaches sort of, you know, say it like it's a given, like it's not, you know, <laughs> exhausting and emotionally taxing and the rest of it. it. So to have that kind of drive and that cons consistency, really, what do you reckon has helped you with that? You know, I've never... Um, you'll get... You, people say it all the time that jiu-jitsu is like an addiction. Um, the same as everything else and I think if you find a sport that sits well with you it, if you've got an addictive personality you'll go two ways you'll either become a crackhead or an elite athlete there's no two ways about it like if you have that addictive personality it's very difficult to find an in-between um, I found the in-between because I got very quickly addicted to the problem solving that jiu-jitsu arose for me that's what's that's honestly what keeps me in it, and genuinely, I don't think there's been a day, other than when I've been sort of injured, where I've gone, oh, I don't want to work today. I've never, I've never had that. Um, 
And it just comes down to, I know that I can go and I can solve a problem. And if I can't solve it there and then, it gives me something to go home and work on. And I am that sort of person that will find something wrong with something in and amongst the technique and go, that's not working for whoever it is. It's either one of my students or myself. And what, you know, why isn't it working for them when it works so well for somebody else? And it, it's that constant problem solving that, that keeps me going in it. I love the competing because, it, again, it increases that. It, it throws another problem at you that I then have to go and solve. Now, that's a really interesting answer. Because, again, you get a lot of people saying, okay, really people quit Bluebird because they've already completed it at that point. They've had their first ch- taste of, like, okay, they've got their promotion, they've got their acknowledgement, they're a king of jiu-jitsu, exactly. happy days, they've mastered it. And then what, they kind of peak of it. Uh, these, like... <laughs> Like, I don't know, serial medals you get from like competitions. Like, okay, I've got the down the road yeah, open, yeah. working gold, I'm happy days. I've completed it. I'm like, you know, Leandro Lola. Well, that's it. And then what? But it's good that you've yeah, identified and people, Sorry, carry on. people tend to find that you get a blue belt, and the biggest thing is you hit a plateau. At white belt, your, your own sort of improvement and your own education in it skyrockets. You learn so quickly at white belt. And as soon as you hit blue belt and you go, all right, I know all these positions now. I might not have specific techniques for each from every position. And reverse pin Delariva worm guard doesn't exist to me. And if it does at blue belt, you're an idiot. Um, but the, so they, they understand what jiu-jitsu is, but they've not yet decide, uh, decided whether or not they're going to stick with it and get past that plateau of going... Well, I know what it is. I need to know the ins and outs of everything. And I don't think there was one point when when I ever want to stop learning. Even now, I, I'll, you know, I'll go to the gym. Me and my wife go and train. And there's little problems in what we're doing that we then come home from the gym and carry on talking about it for an hour and a half and practicing techniques on the floor. Just because we've establish some problems in our sparring and we just want to not necessarily fix them there and then but we want to work on them instantly how do you find the balance with you know training and think of jiu-jitsu full-time and also on the mats and off the mats like how do you find switching off or is there any switching off at all with it the the three kids really helps you switch off from it did you get married in but, your no in all honesty no, we didn't actually. Although on our wedding cake we were in geese, so <laughs> with little uh, little statues on the wedding cakes in geese and belts wrapped around it, it's cool. We did contemplate getting married in the geese, but she looked too good in the wedding dress to not. If that makes sense. Good answer. No, that's the one. Good it? answer, just in case. We uh, <laughs> yeah, just yeah. <laughs> we contemplated having a first roll over a first dance, but. Uh, yeah, anyway, we'll leave that there. Yeah, I'll just let everybody's mind go. Yeah, I don't think getting to um, reverse to the worm guard. And, um, well, in saying that, the wedding dress, the sort of train on it is quite good for um, the pale guard, but that's a different conversation, I think. I'd just take top position. Just... There you go. Hello, Sailor. Wait, he's the night talking area. Okay, so. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it all comes off the woodwork. Um, when it comes to... No, we... Um, Sorry. No, it was just, um, 
switching off with it's something that there isn't a day goes by where it isn't mentioned we might be sat watching something on the tv and usually we're sat watching something on the tv and there's a little mini fight scene or whatever and i'm sat frowning and rolling my eyes and you know the standard jiu-jitsu reaction to a fight scene on tv and uh yeah it just it's disgusting most of the time um but yeah and especially at the minute we've got mats down in the house as well so there's always something it's like you know that you know that arm up from the top how can i get round to that position without losing balance or little questions and instead of me just explaining it like oh, come on let's do it so we just end up doing we just end up doing it a lot of the time um but you know i think uh you just you just scrap don't you we've got me and my wife are really lucky we've got a really good relationship and we can do that we can just go to the gym and train and come home and it, it's something that we both really enjoy so there's never a point where she's sat there going oh just shut up talking about that bloody sport will you it just it doesn't occur you'd think it was the other way around wouldn't you when saying that it's so good having someone that gets it because like if you tell you like your partner who doesn't train like oh I just want to roll with these sweaty men. It's so nice. We really like it. And like, you know, it's one of them ones. Like, he sits in my face and it's just fantastic. I'm thinking, okay, what about jujitsu? Yeah. Don't worry about that. It's a different conversation. But Yeah, it's completely. Don't worry about it. Let's just not worry about that. No, it's, you know, I, I, I feel blessed that we both get to train and, and that we, you know, we both genuinely enjoy, enjoy it. Um, I think it's a shame that it's difficult to initially get women into the sport. Because You're... technically they're better than us. Well, this is a huge point as well. If you ever roll with like a female purple belt onwards, there's a good chance you'll feel like you're on a fucking mm. washing machine. It's horrible. They're not very nice. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> they're really good. And they've no, and... been through the fucking... Like, gauntlet enough times to sort of you know deal with the overly strong men to be technical and just absolutely awful hate it yeah and there's there's an element of it it's funny i think women up until and again i might get absolutely slated for this but women up until blue belt are never at a point where they're able to muscle a technique because the majority of people they train against are bigger than them so, again, I'll stick with using my wife as an example. She'll she'll go training, and she might she might want to just do a, a hip bump sweep in the training session, and it's not working out because once she gets up and she's got to really turn a hip over to land that hip sweep, she's got to execute it much better, and and it's got to be much better timed than if an 85 kilo guy was to go and do the same thing. Because the guy's got weight behind him and power behind him, so he can execute it. Miss the timing, or you know, just miss the timing, and the technique might not be perfect, but he's got that much weight behind it. He's still creating the same amount of power, so he can still turn over someone. But from very early on, a woman has to be able to execute the technique perfectly for it to be able to work. So by the time that the women have got to purple belt, 
they've gone through the they've gone through the mill, I guess, at white and blue of the frustration of going, it's not it's not working. Why isn't it working? I'm doing everything right. It's not working. And all they've done is missed the timing by it and by a freaking gnat's cock and it's just gone. Once they've hit that point and they've missed the timing because they're outweighed so much, it's difficult for them to execute the technique, the, the, the finishing part of it. Whereas, you know, an 85 kilo guy might miss it by that much, might, you know, might miss the timing by that much. But because they've got the weight behind them to generate the power, they'll still be able to execute the technique. Does that make sense? Definitely, because again, that margin for error is like so much more fine. You've got to really prioritise it and you've got to make sure that the sort of hierarchy of is it technique and strength and endurance, this kind of thing. Like if you prioritise the technique and then the strength Ooh. there, then the endurance is there. Fuck me, it's going to be a long roll. <laughs> it's going to be a very long roll. Yeah, and, and so by the time a woman has put the training time into it and got purple and brown belt, anyone coming in at white and blue that's, you know, big and powerful, if their technique isn't on point, well, this last has already wazzed around people better than you. You've got to go in, and if your technique isn't on point, you're just going to get thrown around because they've perfected it to the point where they can overpower the bigger people. And that's an interesting concept in itself in that if you don't have the power aspect, you have to compensate with something else. You've got to find a way of making it work. And that kind of problem solving is taken to an extra final de- level of, okay, if I just do that, that might work. Yeah. But then it's that you've got to do it properly. You can't just think, okay, if I just do this, it'll yeah. be fine, this kind of thing. And on the sort of subject of adapting to things, how do you find keeping up to date with modern trends in in the world of jiu-jitsu versus your like, curriculum? So say you've built your curriculum and then leg locks really mm-hmm. made their, I don't know, reappearance in the world of grappling and everything else. Where does that fit into keeping up to date with things versus, you know, keeping the core fundamentals, for an example? Um, I'd have separate classes in which I would study them in, so I'd have more advanced classes um, and open mats in which if it's not something I'm comfortable with, I'm not, I'll, I'll be studying it myself. I won't necessarily be teaching it. Um, and also seminars and camps. Um, I do, I do a camp every month, usually. Um, and a lot of what we study in these, uh, it's, it's usually core fundamentals. So a lot of the camps that we've done recently are with um, Ben Poppleton, mm-hmm. and we've done butterfly guard, top and bottom, so passing it and utilizing it and then we've done the same with half guard top and bottom um and then the most recent one we did was um back controls and strangles so a lot of that is although very fundamental you can utilize it up to the the highest level so if we look at specifically the butterfly passing um camps that we did a lot of what what we were learning in there that is absolute core fundamental was being utilised at ADCC. So people passing butterfly guard in a way like it's nothing, you know, cutting through it like it's bread, and they're just going, 
I think what I'm trying to get at is I don't feel like anything fancy outside of leg locks really exists anymore. And again, I've seen an ancient Greek statue of some someone heel hooking a centaur. So leg locks aren't new and fancy either. They're just making an appearance more dominantly at the minute. Um, if it's something I'm not entirely confident with, I'll study it or I'll bring someone in. Um, so we brought in, when I'd established that my heel hook game was non-existent, we brought Lloyd Cooper up for a seminar and then I'll flip to different training partners and go and train with other people that are better at leg locks than I am. And then, like I said, I'll go home and study it myself. I mean, that's so important as a coach as well to accept, like, I don't know, it's almost a temptation that when you get a coaching status to, I don't know, take that hierarchy of, okay, I am the teacher, not the student, but to have that mm. open mind is to be, okay, I'm still a student. I'm just, you know, I've got students underneath me as well. That kind of, I don't know, yeah. appreciating there is. To yeah, I like, um, and I think that that's what keeps me in this spot for as long as, as, as long as it will. For as long as my body holds out, I'll be doing it. Um, I, I don't think I'll ever not be a student. And there'll always be somebody better at executing these things than me. And all I want to know is why are they better? Why, why, is, you know, why is Gordon Ryan so good at passing people's guards? So it's actually, to, um, you know, Bale, go back. <laughs> back to task, yeah. Probably a little bit. We've gone full you know, circle. He's never tested positive. He's never tested positive. He must be clean. Very good at avoiding it. But no, it. But if if you go and watch a lot of, yeah, again, I'm, like I said, I'm a bit weird. I'll sit and watch tape if I if I see something, or I think I see something that that has clicked for me in other people, I will go and sit and watch them and I'll buy the DVDs and I'll study it that way. And I've done it before where I bought the DVDs and went, oh, this is wank. And I've just got rid of it because, and it's not necessarily that what they're doing isn't good because, you know, most of these guys that are dropping out DVDs left, right and center, they're top level grapplers. But the biggest thing is having them explaining it in a relatable way to you. I mean, this is a huge point when it comes to teaching. This is why there's a conversation about blue belts teaching and versus should they be able to teach and you get black belts and this kind of thing. And you'll know from your experience of when you how you explain information that if you get a black belt with all the details in the world, explain that to a day one white belt, they don't need to know the intricacies of the grip on the sleeve you use for the arm bar to make sure you secure the hips in case they do any kind of transition. And you need to know, okay, get the posture, get the arm, get your hips out, happy days that's your start and then we'll build on that and sort of build this build this structure and then we'll develop on it and this kind of i don't know horses for courses kind yeah. of thing some people work with different other different styles and this kind of i don't know willingness to understand so how people something learn. i do in my fundamentals classes is uh instead of allowing people to pick their own partners i do it for them so there's a few different reasons as to why first reason is what we've just said, um, a black belt or a brown belt or purple belt understands a position to a much 
higher degree than somebody that's maybe a two-stripe blue belt. But in understanding it that much, when it comes to partnering them with a fresh white belt to drill it, they will put so much information in, and it, it does one of two things. It either makes that white belt go, you know, if it's, it's been there a couple of weeks, go, oh, Jesus, this is a lot to think about, and I'm just not getting it. Or you go, oh, freaking hell, that is a lot to think about. I need to understand it. And it's the, uh, the, the big thing as to whether or not that person's going to stick at it. And I've actually found more, more recently that if you put them with a fresh blue belt, they're getting the same treatment of having a higher belt with a high, much higher understanding of them to have to the technique, but it's not too much that it overwhelms them. And then on the flip side, there's, there's, they will explain things differently. So if it's not working, I'm always there. So if the blue belt isn't managing to explain things properly, they just give me a wave and just go, I'm, I'm messing this up, Sam, show me. And depending on how the person reacts, I will explain it in many different ways. But the other reason I've partnered them up initially is it takes all anxiety out of, I call it schoolyard anxiety, because we were all in PE way back in the day, waiting to be picked for the team. Then, you know, dodgy cripple in the corner, I never got picked for anything. So I understood that anxiety, and it pointed out to me. I laugh away. Yeah, but anyway. it, you know it, that the anxiety of being waited to be picked by someone is uh, it, it gets rid of that, and that's you know another reason I do it. And there's the you know the basics of I, I can match people up for size or personality, you know whatever I want to match them up on on that particular day, I just tell them all I'm a control freak. It helps the training so. It definitely makes a lot of sense, and when it comes to these day one white belts and beginners. The way you sort of treat them initially is so important to make sure their experience is as welcoming as it can be because ultimately we take the environment as red as okay we know these people we know what to expect we know we get smashed sometimes we know it's going to be uncomfortable but you kind of get on with it whereas if you're new to it okay there's a lot of people dressed in their pajamas trying to strangle each other this is quite scary i don't know anyone mm -hmm. this is very intimate this is intimidating so having someone like i advise this to everyone when you see someone new in the gym shake their hand and say hello nice to meet you something small like that just to give them a little take the edge off mm. oh this is scary i don't know anyone oh this person's nice and friendly oh this person who gave me awkward evils just you know probably didn't even notice that was me like this kind of thing of just you know taking the sting out of it yeah. a little bit yeah so i've got i mean my younger brother like he's how old is he 17 ish roughly i don't know anyway he's uh he's been training with me for years and he's very very good um he's he's my assistant coach in the kids classes and if i get a newbie so right will that's his name you're going to work with this person from the start so he'll show them how to shrimp how to do all the little basic movements that we're going to do and then he'll drill with them as well and then when it splits up we'll we'll do our specific sparring that we're going to do he will make sure that he goes with them first and then what i'll do is i introduce who goes with them 
because again, you've got a gym full of people and each person has a different level to them. So if I put them in with the guy that's just constantly training for competition and will drip sweat in their eyeball, the mouth and the nose all at the same time, it's going to put them off. And again, it's just trying to tailor that experience and also that fine line between if you get someone new, like how much do you give them the jiu-jitsu treatment of, okay, they're big and muscly and they need someone small to wrap them up in knots and sort of, you know, show them how it works and also how much do people need the, oh, it's not as bad as it looks, don't worry, you're going to learn, you'll grow in this kind of nurturing approach and that weird grey area of, do you want them to think it works or do you want them to think, okay, it's an environment I can grow in? And it's a very, it's a very tricky yeah, situation. Yeah, a funny one. I think you've got to try and judge that on each person. Uh, um, because, you know, the, the big muscly guy that needs to know how it works, needs to know, you've got to, you've got to show him that. I had the, I'll go back, I've got uh, one of my students, he's called Damien, and he, prior to starting jiu-jitsu, he did, bodybuilding he did strongman training he did everything and i think when he came up to train with us initially he was about 110 kilos and he just came up and he was like it, it can't work it can't work on me i'm like i think i was about 64 kilos at the time will have been 54 something like that he's only small he's going to be 14 no that's young that even anyway not the point but that's what we did. We did. We put Will with him, and, and Will did uh, just a, a simple hip throw and dumped him on his backside. He did hip throw on me over his shoulder, and then he went with a couple of other guys, and then I, I had a little roll with him at the end. And he's, he's the friendliest bloke you'll ever meet. So there was never any ego with him. He was just, he, he needed to see it and feel it all for himself and uh, he, he still goes on about it today, the first day I trained with him I put him in like it's like a, a modified Americana from Guard I think and I never know names or anything, it's alright yeah, I think that's it I don't know, I was doing it before me, I was doing it anyway I'm Ooh, checking that he um, <laughs> can argue with me, he's bigger than me it's fine that's it. um but yeah, I, it was. I, I think I'd, I'd caught him with that very early on, and uh, he, he remembers it now. I'd put it on, and he's going, "Nah, this won't hurt. This won't hurt. This won't. Yeah, that that one's hurting." And uh, and he just sort of stood up afterwards and goes, "I don't understand how you can manage to make it. How it can beat me." And now he's now he's a purple belt. Oh God, it's but, terrifying. 110 kilo purple belt who's actually strong and also good. No, oh, he's, I can help. He's lo- he's what's he now? He's probably about ninety kilos now. He's lost oh, uh, lost a lot of size. <laughs> yeah, only ninety now. Um, he's lost a lot of size, but he is probably because he needed to understand the intricacies of everything. He teaches uh, a class for me now at that that solely focuses on fundamentals and escapes because he feels like that's what he wanted to learn when he first started. So. I mean, it's it's how the sport grows. He he was overwhelmed by the need to learn how how to escape everything because when he started, we were all a bit meaner. 
and this is to say, you know, it goes back when I started jiu-jitsu, when I first started going to a few gyms, no one gave a flying, yeah, bleep it. No one, no one cared. You just got absolutely mullered into the floor and you either stayed or you didn't. And that was it. And, you know, we're, we're a little bit more gentle now. We try and uh, entice people into it, give them that, you know, false sense of security. And then after, yeah, and then after three months, then we muller them. Well, I mean, you, you do need that it's, sort of uh, air of, I don't know, sort of the original roots of like, you know, this is, this isn't it. This is general art, but oh, this is not though, is it? <laughs> I still, I still tell them all about it. When they first start, I say, you know, we're, we're all dead nice now, but it, it, it was almost 10 years ago when I started. It was, um, 2010, 2011, something like that. Yeah, anyway, it's not important. Um, yeah, even then, it was, you'd go into the gym and you'd just, you'd get to the sparring point and it was just every man for himself. It was like, you would just do everything you could to survive. And I, oh, I thrived in it. I absolutely loved it. But again, I'm a bit mental. Prior to um, jiu-jitsu, when it came to being sort of the disabled kids in the playground and stuff, how did you find people going hard on you and giving you the same kind of, I don't know, treatment? Because do you think it was the quality of jiu-jitsu that really gave you that feeling as such? Um, yeah, I couldn't stand school when I was younger for, for those reasons. It was, it was constant. It was always sort of bullying and name calling and what you would expect. Um, when it came to jujitsu, there was never any negativity. Um, I found no matter where I went, it was always like, okay, you know, there was always an element of sort of staring off from the distance of this guy's got one arm. What the hell is he doing here? And varying other sort of little questions, but. I tended to find that because you're forced into a scenario where you've then got to grip up and fight with that person, that they'll either ask outright and just say, is there anything I shouldn't do? Or how is you, you know, they'd ask the right questions here and there. um, Or they'd just get to the end of the role afterwards and be like, yeah, you know, that wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. And, Sometimes, you know, you know, people start off a bit tentative and, you know, back, back in the day. But, I don't know, it's a very different environment. And I think it, the fact is, <laughs> because you're forced to either submit to somebody or ma- make somebody submit, I think it's very grounding. So to speak, little jiu-jitsu pun there. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> and on that note, where can people find you on the old social media? We, uh, oh, right. I've got um, my gym's page on Instagram and Facebook is the Lake District BJJ Academy. Um, I think the actual tag thing on Instagram is just at Lake's BJJ. Uh, or I'm on, I only really use Instagram, so it's uh, Phantom of the Mats on, on Instagram. You know, if you want me to sing the overture to it I, well no I won't that's a lie but I'll play it <laughs> wonderful and that will be in the description the link's not necessarily the song 